Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday um, afternoon. Let me see if I can do the Torah today. Uh, obviously, it's Pasha Zohar, <clears throat> very famous story, um, as I think everybody knows. Uh, I'll share this very interestingly before... The, as an extra twist, somebody just wrote me this morning and said, uh, could you tell me about the Amalekim using Kishav to hide in Pira's stone? And I'm trying to source it, etc., etc., to shed some light on the matter. I wasn't planning to do that, but uh, <clears throat> but I will mention it um, as, I go, <clears throat> as I go on. Today's uh, Haftorah is being uh, sponsored by, uh, it's the second of the two from Mayor Jacobson, Michal Renner, I want to thank them both uh, for doing that. One last week, one this week. And uh, I hope next week we'll be able to get sponsors, <coughs> obviously. And without any further ado, uh, let's take a look at, at Parsha Zohar. <coughs> Everybody knows the story about Shmuel and, and King Saul and all the rest of it. Or they kind of do. Um, as I mentioned last night, it's a little bit funny to have this in Parshas Vayikra, which is all about sacrifices, and then you have all this rhetoric on the part of Shmuel Novi in which he says, "Hachevitz Hashem says, welcome to Hashem done these sacrifices.' You understand? Mishmo Mizevach Tov. You know, God just wants you to listen to him. <clears throat> okay, but what exactly is uh, going on over here? Uh, the reason we read this Haftarah, as I think most people know, is because of the angle that, since he let a god live, so he didn't really have to deal with Haman. <clears throat> That's the way it goes. If you look in the Gemara, uh, very interesting, in the uh, in Megillah, where they do so-and-so, and so-and-so, you know, each rabbi used to give a speech on Purim, emphasizing one aspect or another, quoting Pesukim, it's all over Yud and and one of them is that it says in the Chumash, if you don't wipe out the Goyim, they'll come back and bite you. And God says, whatever I was planning to do to them, I'll do to you. And Rashi says, that because Shaul let Amalek live, so therefore later on we had to deal with Haman. Very well-known idea. And what that means is Rav who, as you know, was a Tana and Amura, late Tana, early Amura. Uh, when he gave the speech on Purim, he, he emphasized that aspect, which is one of the aspects. The idea is don't be so uh, merciful to Amalek. Now, um, it's very interesting because what it says, I mentioned this morning in a shir I gave, this whole theme raises the question of the limits of rationalism. And by that I mean rational thinking and rational interpretations of the Torah particularly, as I've mentioned in the past, are always time-bound. Can't help but a human being is time-bound. And so when I look at a, any aspect of the Torah and I see does it make any sense or not, 
I can't help but thinking within the framework of my own time that I'm living in. Perhaps the past as well as the present, you know, if you're a little historically minded. But you don't know the future. It's not possible. And so when you and I make rational decisions, I don't mean rationality, you know, immediate decisions like not to jump into the into the fire. I'm talking about decisions in life, you know, plans for life, children, marriage, jobs, you know, stuff like that, politics. So you, like, who should you vote for, for example? You make a rational decision according to your understanding of rationalism. And, you know, you hope that this guy will be a good president or governor or something like that. But no one could foresee a little while ago that there would be a big war going on in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. Nobody thought about that. And when I voted for Polony or Almoni, I never figured it would have to do with it. You see what I'm saying? It's not possible to know that. Now, a, there's always been the rationalist interpretation of the Torah, among others. And it's got pluses and minuses. But one of the minuses is you don't know the future, so when the Torah tells you to do something, even if you say it can't be because it doesn't make any sense, maybe it doesn't make any sense in the immediate present, but in the long-term future, it'll, it, it'll pop up. So that's what happened with King Saul and Samuel. Saul was told to wipe out every last aspect of Amalek, as we know. <laughs> even the animals. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's the story. Correct? You know, it's called Shalhem, whatever the lotion is. Isha, Isha, Yonik, got this and that and the other. Here it is. Lechli, Kisa, Zamolik, Achramtim, it's called Shalom. Vemata, Isha, Isha, Ola, Yonik, Mishor, and Seb, Migomla, Chamor. All the animals. So, from a strictly rational point of view, it's possible to say this. Why do you, you know, why wipe at the animals? And anyway, I can do like Shal figure he could do, which is. Kill two birds in one stone. Kill the animals in the context of being a carbon. So save them from the battlefield and bring them in and offer them for a carbon later on. <clears throat> After all, Shaul wasn't, um, what's the right word, looking to make money on the deal. The guy was loaded. Remember, it says in uh, the partial, well, it's not what we read, but I think uh, if you're a Sephardi, right? Or maybe it is in our in, in our uh, Torah also. Maybe not. Yeah, it is. Because He counted his army of 200,000 infantry. So, what does that mean? Rashi says. So, what King Saul said was, I want to count how many soldiers in my army, I don't want to count people. So everybody take one of my sheep. And at the end, I'll count how many sheep there were. You know, when you let the sheep go into a corral. So the guy had a quarter of a million sheep almost. So he was loaded up to the gills. So Shaul didn't have to worry about extra sheep from, uh, you know, from the spoils of Amalek. So it wasn't a matter of personal, you know, uh, gain. Take him at his word. He wanted to do the right thing and offer up a carbon. It was a voluntary thing on his part. After all, what could be the problem? Now, how should Shaul have known... It's not possible to know. How should Shaul have known, if I wait an extra day, I'm going to cause a thousand years from now trouble to my descendants from Haman. You get my point? The Torah which said, do it this way, or in this particular case, the prophet Samuel, who brought a message from God, which says, kill everybody and do it today. Now, now, was guided by a divine wisdom that could see past the time limits. And know, if you don't kill them all now, then... 900 years later, however long it was, you know, let's figure this out. 
King Saul would be around the year 1000. Haman would be around the year, I don't know, without getting into the politics of the Persian Gulf, let's be Eric say 400 BCE, so 600 years later. All right, so how should Saul know that six centuries later, you know, it's going to pop up a guy like Haman? But the answer is, if the prophet told him God said to do this, he should have had, I won't say blind faith, but he should have had faith. When I say blind faith, in other words, if Hashem says he can see a picture bigger than me, and he can see that if we don't kill these guys out, agog up right now, later on we'll pop up a problem called Haman, which will come close to wiping out Kla Yisrael, and it will take my um, descendant, uh, Mordechai, who's a Yar ben Shim ben Kish, Kish the father of Saul, and, you know, it'll, it'll be a close call, let's put it that way. But that's what faith is, emunah. It means that if you're dealing with a bona fide prophet, you know, you don't give emunah to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. That's the problem with certain movements in Judaism. <laughs> but a real bona fide Navi, who's speaking in half of God, you do give emunah to. And if he says, do this and that, it doesn't make any sense to you. Not only do you say that maybe I'm wrong in my cheshman, but even if you, you know, and it doesn't make sense to me, it's not only a question of saying, you know, what do you mean it doesn't make any sense to you? Uh, you think you're smarter than God? Aside from that, even if you have a good rational system, even if you have a very smart person, but you can't transcend your your, your time limitations, it's not possible for you to know that it's important to do this thing now because 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, it'll play out. Only Hashem can do that. So Demuna is not just a blind faith, but it's a recognition of the fact that we are bound by time limits and we cannot see the future, but Hashem can. And when He says to do something, He may have in mind the effect it's going to have in the future. So maybe it doesn't make a difference right now if I spill the milk uh, on the right side of me or the left side of me. But if the Navi says spill the milk on the left side of me, it could be that spilling the milk on the left side of me may have a, 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 a hashpah, may have a, 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 a play out 100 years from now. How could I know it's going to be 100 years from now? After all, 100 years ago, did anybody know there's going to be a Holocaust? Did anybody know there's going to be in Israel? Certainly anybody knows there's going to be Putin war. You know what I'm saying? We can't do like that. The best we can do is figure out what's going to be in the immediate future, maybe, maybe, maybe. But not in the distant future. It's never possible to do that. So that's why this story is very interesting because King Saul comes out over here, a rationalist, the Haino. He figured, listen, I was told to wipe everything out, but it doesn't really matter if I if I kill him today or tomorrow. Instead of being Zerizim Akdimin, and you and I know that it had a long-term uh, fallout. And <clears throat> it had a long-term fallout. So in that particular regard... From the philosophical perspective, it seems that the story in the Haftar is very, very interesting. Uh, and, you know, from a Frumi perspective, he said, if you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to do it. Because Shmuel really blasted him. You know, Ki Chatas Kesem Mary. You did like a certain rebellion. It's almost like witchcraft. I mean, it wasn't witchcraft. But, you know, it's really funny, of course. He blasted him and said, Chatas Kesem Mary. Bob and Haftar. And you, you like having Trophim and, and uh, Kesem. You're dealing with uh, witchcraft. King Saul wasn't dealing with witchcraft, but he does at the end. He goes to the Witch of Endor. That's, uh, you know, uh, one of those uh, ironies, uh, literary ironies that in which the Tanakh abounds, especially Nach Nevi'im. 
There are a lot of those type of things. You know what I'm saying? In other words, King, the, the, the theme of Kishif kind of hovers in the background because he was told that what you were doing by being rational is equivalent to going to Kishif. Kichatas kesem meri, the oven usrafim hafzar. That's what Shmuel says to him. And it boils down to what you are guilty of is the crime of like witchcraft or consulting demons. Well, that's not true. I mean, King Saul didn't go witchcraft and all that. But it comes from the same episode, which is the person who's pursuing witchcraft is saying, I don't want to do Hashem's way. I want to do my way. Right? I can get something through a nation Hashem, but I can also bypass that and do it through Kisamim, through various witchcraft stuff. And uh, that's a big no-no. It says, you're not allowed to do that. It's a Chaimisa and so forth. And that took him down, by the way, because, as I said before, even though, if you remember the story of the Witch of Endor, the Balas Ov, it does say that Shaul killed out all the Machshefas, but he didn't. It's like the police saying, we rounded up all the drugs in this neighborhood, but they didn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if they did, it's replaced very quickly. And so, it's a funny story, I mean, it's a sad story. When he goes later on to consult the witch, even though he killed out all the witches, he asked his two aides, where are the witches? Oh, there's one down the road over here. <laughs> you understand? Because certain things you can't get rid of. You can't get rid of witches. They couldn't get rid of the prostitutes. They couldn't get rid of the drugs. They couldn't get rid of cigarettes. You know how it goes, right? So, um, Now, one of the aspects of the Kishav, which is a very weird one, as far as I'm concerned, is this story that Rashi does mention in, in the Shmuel. And this guy asked me about in the in the uh, in the uh, uh, email today, the guy from Lakewood, and has to do with the theme of Kishab over here, meaning that they're wondering in the story why does God say wipe out all the animals and kill them now? Ad that Hashem was angry that he left the 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 the, the son of Bukhar alive, okay. Because you remember, Shmuel says, Meh call its own, you know, what's the, what's the bleeding of the sheep? So, um, so what's going on? Why would you have to kill the, the sheep? So, it's very famous that uh, Rashi in Shmuel, in this Haftar today, says that, Misharviyat said, Shahiyabali Kishafim, they could do witchcraft, so they could they could transform themselves magically through magic into animals, and then they would escape the massacre, and then they would transform themselves obviously back into um, people, and that's how the Amalekites would survive. So, in order to prevent that, you had to kill all the animals. Uh, you got to admit that's a strange shot. That's a strange shot. Uh, the logical shot is not that at all. The logical shot is. That um, let me see, I think the what's his name says it the Radak, who usually is in the logical stuff. Uh, here it is. This is Mishor Ve'at Chamor. Chamor. If any of the animals are left alive, is Doctor Radak, Yomru Zehayu People say that's a Molokite stuff. And you'll violate the rule to wipe out the memory of a Molok. You get rid of anything that reminds you of a Molik. 
So as part of the din of Timchas Zecher Amalek, the Zecher part, that means you should get rid of any property. So not only does it imply that you should kill all the animals, each and every one of them, but if there was a car that had the word, a license plate for Amalek on it, or a house that had any kind of Amalekite sign, you know, all that stuff, you're supposed to destroy it. That is what you call a rational interpretation. The reason Hashem said to destroy everything is there should be nothing left that even reminds you of Amalek. To tell you the truth, that's a nice shot, but it doesn't explain then why Hashem got so angry that he didn't kill the animals right away, but was planning to kill them later on. All right, it wasn't Zrizim Akdim Lamitzvah, that's true. But what's the big deal as long as you kill them in the end? In order to, you get what I'm saying? That's a gap in the narrative. What I'm trying to get across to you is whenever you see these Agatatas, and some are wild and crazy Agatatas, they're really there to try to supply some kind of a gap in the narrative. And so why did Hashem and Shmuel Anavi get so out of sh- bent out of shape? Because he didn't kill him right away. And he waited to, to kill him the next day, or they're going to have a, 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 a in Gilgal, I mean in Carmel, and they're going to have a parade and so forth. Lamai said at the end, you'll kill them all. So what's the big deal? Shmuel should have said, I'm here, let's do it now. I mean, now. Instead of saying, because of this sin, it's the biggest mistake of your life, God tears the kingdom away from you, now you have a doomed existence, which Shaul does, and he lives a life of misery afterwards, etc., etc. You know, why? Must be that there was some fatal error in letting him live an extra day, even. But what kind of fatal error could there be? Uh, by Behemoth. Bishlam, if you tell me Agag was a human being, so he said he got a girl pregnant that night. Okay, I hear that. You know, that that that's a normal way. But what about the Bahamas? What's so bad about that? You understand? What's so bad about that? So, um, in order to answer that, they have to say, hey, Agag wasn't the only guy that survived. Uh, these other people would also survive in the form of animals. Because by Kisha, they could go back and forth. Right? So, I was asked... What's the Makor for this? Which is actually a, a, a better question than, than you realize. And the reason I say this is because there's no Chazal like that. I did a little bit of homework. There's no Chazal like that. There's no Gemara, there's no Medrash or anything like that um, to the effect that the Amalekites could do Kishif and turn themselves into animals and back and forth like the Pinocchio uh, story, you know, Pinocchio movie. There is no Gemara like that. You think there, you think there was. Um, so where's the source of this? That already is what's called Wissenschaft question. You know, a nineteenth-century scholarship question. What's the source for different stories? Um, as far as I can see, uh, you have the Rashi over here that I just mentioned in Shmuel, and it's Rabbeinu Bachaya. In Kisete, you know, where it says at the end over there that we're going to read this week's parsha, right? Zohar, Shesachon, Malik, and so forth. So, um, in Kisete, where it says, So the Bain of says, Hemata, being Kenyish Nemar, Hemata Isha, Isha, Ologa, Mishor, Ratzeh, wipe out even the animals. Tim Gezecha, Malik. Like I read you before in the in the Radak, who I believe lived a little bit before Ben Abchai, but more or less same time. Viod and the Ben Abchai continues. Mimasha Darshu Chazal. 
it's based on a drasha of Zal. Shall you also matzim behemis bechachmas a kishav for chores and imin shiyirtu? Says mamash like Pinocchio, they could go, they can turn themselves into an animal and then turn themselves back into a human being. Right? So, that's just interesting to me. The Ben Bechai says, it's a drush of Chazal. So, me, myself, and I, whenever you have an obscure kind of thing like that, I'm old-fashioned. So, whenever you have one of these Wissenschaft questions, which is the original source, is it in a Medrash, in a, in a Gemara, is it in some uh, apocryphal literature, Josephus, Philo, Pseudophilo, all the Louis Feldman stuff. Uh, you know, when you look over there, Pseudopigrapha, where, where, where does this come from? So I always whip out my rusty, trusty Louis Ginsburg, which the legends do, especially the uh, the footnotes. And he talk said, there is no Chazal like that. All you have is a Bain of Achaya, who he thinks got it from a certain version of the Pirker Blazer and, and Perglama test. Well, I have my Pirker Blazer, the regular one with the uh, Radal. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only Gearsa out there, but, you know, I couldn't find the other one again. I have a different one also. Um, but I can only pull out the one with the Radal, the classic one. There's nothing there in Perkulama Tess. And as we begin to say, he says in some versions of the Pirker of Lezer. We don't have it. So, you know, it piqued my interest. If I want to see footnotes, if he says they dash them, but nobody gives you where it is, what do you do? The answer is you pull out Chevelle, correct? Uh, you know, the Chevelle edition, the, old, the golden oldies from uh, Mosro Cook from long ago, Rabbi uh, Charles Chevelle. And he has all the footnotes. He did He did the homework before the internet existed. Well, guess what? I pulled out my Chevelle on Parshish uh, Kisete, on this part of Masha Darsha Ghazalu Sansa Behemus Chachmasakisho. And guess what? In the footnote where it says Darsha Ghazal, Chevelle says, Lo Yaduli Hamakor. <laughs> Lo Yaduli Hamakor. I don't know where it's from. Meaning, there is no Gemara like that, no Chazal, no regular types. Now, that doesn't mean it's not true, but on the other hand, it's not what you call grounded in the usual way we understand Agatha's, which is there's a Midrashic source in a, in a classic Medrash, not a weirdo Medrash, you know, not Medrash uh, Poo Poo or something like that, but, you know, Medrash Rabba, Tankuma, this, that, you know, re- regular Midrashian. So, it's, it is a little bit strange, okay? It is strange. Uh, one thing is for sure. Uh, the theme of Shaul and Kishab is like kind of weird because if you, I just remember in Divrei Yomim, uh, there's almost no mention of Saul whatsoever. But in chapter, because usually the first part of Divrei Yomim is just the big ass. This guy had this on, this one had this on. A lot of obscure names. But in chapter 10, they talk about the death of Saul, right? Which is obviously lifted from Shmuel in some way or another. And, you know, the death of Saul in battle against the Philistines at the Battle of Gilboa. And at the end, I just remember this. It said, Vayama Shaul, Bamalu Asher Bashem, in his betrayal of God, his sin, Al Dvar Hashem Shamar, he, Dvar Hashem Shamar, doesn't say what it was. Sounds like a Moloch, correct? But it doesn't say it. It says, Al Bimalo Asher Bashem, Al Dvar Hashem Shamar. Sounds like a Moloch because it sounds like there was something he was supposed to do and he didn't do it. 
So that sounds like our our after today. Vagam lishol ba'ov lidrosh, and because he went to witchcraft, because he went to the to the to, to the witch of Endor, the Balasov, uh, which is very fascinating. And the targum now it's not really a targum. This is the rayamim. This is ksuvim. But ksuvim we don't really have a targum. But there's a targum they print, and it taka learns. Uh, he didn't keep the promise that he went to battle based on Molech. No, there's Parsha Zohar. And he went to a witch, to a Balasov, in order to get, you know, uh, a teaching over there. Uh, Rashi, or Miyuchas Rashi, and other sources try to come up with the sins of Saul. And it turns out a little bit like Moshe Rabbeinu, where they say, it doesn't say exactly what it was, and people come up with all of them. Uh, and, you know, some want to learn, it's a hello shmuel, darshim and asida, shloshamar, shibasyam tochal, that loshamar refers to the very beginning of his reign when the prophet Samuel told him, wait seven days till I get here and don't start the carbon, and he did anyway. There's a lot of spotty records and the reign of King Saul, as, as we know, and the Vilna Gon I see here has a sixth one. So uh, one thing uh, is clear that there's this well-known story about the Kishab and the, and the animals, but there's no source for it as far as we can tell. But remember, so I, in other words, let me put it this way. I don't know where Rashi, if it's Rashi on Shmuel, and I don't know where the Bain of Machai gets it from. Uh, they understand it's a Drashish Chazal, Darshuzal. But remember, we don't, you and I, don't have today the totality of the literature that was around a thousand years ago, which is interesting because we consider ourselves to be more advanced, but there's stuff that has been lost. And this would be an example, I guess, of some medrash, midrashic type of thing which has been lost, even though it certainly sounds like the type of thing that you would ordinarily come across either in an Enyakov type of situation or a medrash rabba type of situation, but you don't. But you don't. So that's why I say to me, what's more so that's the answer to the person that asked me. But to me, the more interesting part is the limitations on on rationalism, not on rationality. There should never be any limitations on rationality. Do not lie down <laughs> and go to sleep on the FDR, you know? Don't lie down on the Baltimore Beltway. It's not a good idea. That violates rationality. But rationalism, which is that my that reason can comprehend the totality of reality is flawed in many ways. First of all, there's no proof that reason can comprehend the totality of reality. But second of all, ignores the time element, and that seems to be the big sin of Saul. If this simply was an incident where Saul messed up, it, we wouldn't be reading it every year as part of the Parsha of the week before Purim. Obviously, the whole custom, of which is an interesting custom, which arose to read this, means you're basing on the fact that we assign a lot of the blame what happened in terms of Haman with the failure of Shaul, which is a certain angle on the Purim story. What are we supposed to learn out of this? Go shoot every Amalekite? There aren't any Amalekites around today. There aren't any. Not that you know about it. I mean, I don't, you know, <laughs> you want to start calling names? You can call all kinds of people names. There were Hasidic Rebbes. I won't go into this. In Hungary, you used to call each other Amalek. You know, whatever. But uh, the, the point is, right, the real point is, that the you don't know the future. So when the Torah tells you to do something and, it's, and it doesn't make sense, and by the way, it could be that it doesn't make sense because 
I live in the 21st century, this guy lived in the 18th century, that guy lives in the 22nd century. There are things that won't make sense or will go against, you know, the grain based on the values of the century in which you lived. There's no use to denying that. That's the way it's going to be. Uh, but you have confidence that what I know in the 21st century doesn't comprehend the whole picture. And it certainly doesn't see generations ahead. That, I think, is the most interesting aspect of learning the story of, of Shaul. Uh, had he known that by letting Agog go for an extra day, he's going to cause home, he wouldn't have done it. There's no question about that. So he didn't come on that angle. And it's funny, because King Saul had Ruch HaKodesh. That's the story where he says, you'll become a new man right after he's anointed. So he saw the transformations that are possible, you know, uh, magically, spiritually, whatever, in a human being. He himself experienced it. But for some reason, he didn't transfer it over to the idea that if the Navi says something, you just do it and follow everything now, right away. Because if Hashem said, do it now, there must be a reason for it. And it seems that he was trying to figure out the reasons of his own and to please Hashem and bring an extra carbon. And that caused the whole the whole foul up. So uh, the philosophical angle, I guess, the theological philosophical angle of the Parsha in relation to the Purim story is what strikes me as the most interesting and thoughtful aspect of the Haftorah that we're going to read this coming Shabbos. Anyway, once again, I want to thank Mary Jacobson and the Renards and, uh, and uh, wish everybody a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.